0: So in the last couple weeks uh, I've noticed probably for the first time that uh, when Mike teaches he uses this little table. Uh, I I honestly have never noticed that before. Uh, Not that I'm not paying attention when Mike preaches. I I just haven't been paying attention to the fact that he uses this table. Whenever I teach I just grab the nearest music stand and off I go and didn't really make anything of it. But I've noticed in the last couple weeks because (laughs) in the last couple of weeks if you've been here you've noticed that 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 the flat surface of what mike has called this his his teaching table has allowed him to like like bring stuff with him and and to kind of you know bring bring things to enjoy while while he gives a sermon and so a couple of weeks ago if you remember he had like a whole bag of m&ms here and then last week he had a tim horton's cup that was sitting here that he was kind of sipping from, from time to time and the last couple of weeks, I just noticed that, and I thought, "Wow, that that's that's a really good idea. I should start doing that. I should start, I should start bringing stuff." And I actually, I was having a moment sitting down and and, and watching Mike teach last week when he had that Tim Hortons cup, and you know it was May long weekend, and it was getting nice out, and I sat there thinking, you know, it'd be really good. You know, one day when you're when you're teaching with this table could kind of accommodate would be a a nice cold beer. I, I, I bet that would be fantastic and I kind of envisioned this like, you know, kind of frosty Corona with a little lime and you pop it in and every once in a while you could have a little sip and I realize it's kind of early but that man that you know in a warm summer day that would probably be that would probably be really great. But I I, I didn't do that this morning. Um, All joking aside, because I understand that there are uh, some if not many of us uh, that do wrestle with issues related to alcohol, uh, if not alcohol directly things that are triggered by. Alcohol, and I wouldn't want uh, for anybody to have to deal with a visual while they're trying to pay attention to what uh, ultimately God would want to say to them. So, I didn't bring one with me today. But, but, but here's what I want us to think about just for a moment: What if I did? And and what if during the message I was kind of sipping from it? What would you do? What what would that do in your spirit, based on how you understand faith and church and sermons and how this? How this all works. I I, I just, I wondered about that. I wondered how fast and furious the emails would be flying to me or to our board of elders about something that you just absolutely do not do in church. Like that's an absolute no-no, is not it? In fact, for some of us, we we came from a background where we learned some of the absolute no-nos according to a little, uh, almost like a little song that said, you know, in, in church, you do not drink or dance or smoke or chew or hang around with those who do right? Those are kind of the absolute no nos of church, or at least they were a generation or so ago. And I'm just wondering, you know, if, if you think about what would happen if someone you know, pulled out a beer and started like what would happen in your spirit? What, what other things would trigger that in you? What other things in your life and your understanding of a life of faith are kind of absolute no-no's what we might even consider to be the more deadly sins and not just the the kind of things that you think God would frown on, but in the idea of not drinking, dancing, smoking or chewing or hanging around with those who do the, the kinds of things that would be worth shunning other people, the kind of things that would be worth shutting other people out and kind of excluding them from the from the church community. What are those things in your mind? And I wonder this morning how those things in your mind compare to what Jesus would consider are the most deadly sins in a life of faith. Because that's where we're finding ourselves at this point in our study of the biography of Jesus written by one of his friends and followers named Matthew. We've been three or four years into this, kind of on and off. And recently, we've studied passages where Jesus has looked at one of his disciples named Peter, and he said, on this rock, I will build my church, he says, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. And now, kind of diving back in, um, what Jesus does, or at least what Matthew records, is a number of different sections of Jesus' teaching where he kind of describes how that happens. How he builds his church, or more accurately, on What kind of people? And more specifically, this next section of text that we're going to look at for these next five weeks deal with the kind of people that, according to Jesus, he flatly and fundamentally cannot build his church on. Kind of the attitudes and behaviors that disqualify you from being able to, you know, have the church built in and on you according to Jesus. And so we've titled this series, The Five Deadly Sins of Church, Because these seem to be, as we understand it, five of the absolute no-nos when it comes to Jesus' vision of building his church in a way that the gates of hell will not overpower it. And so we're kind of excited by this. We're really looking forward to this series. And if you brought a Bible along or have uh, a Bible app on your portable device, I'd encourage you to turn there and uh, just read along. It's only a few verses today, uh, beginning in uh, chapter 18 of the book of Matthew. We're going to pick it up in verse 1 where it says this. It says at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Quite simply, they wanted to know in God's economy how the ranking system worked. And before you just write these disciples off as being you know immature or or foolish or whatever appreciate that there are some very legitimate reasons at least in the lives of the disciples for them to be asking this question for them to be wondering how the the ranking system of Jesus kingdom works the, the first is just the fact that Jesus described this as a a kingdom. That's how he described this new society of people committing to a life of faith of following him. He talked about it as a kingdom. And quite simply, kingdoms are monarchies. And monarchies have hierarchies. So, you know, just out of curiosity, I'm sure they wanted to know how the hierarchy worked in the monarchy of Jesus' spiritual community. What does, well, you know, what is the class system of this Kingdom. How does that work? The other thing, though, that's probably more specific to pay attention to or to remember is that in recent passages, in, in kind of the last couple chapters, it seemed as if Jesus has started to kind of play favorites among his disciples or to kind of rank them individually. There was the time just a few passages ago where, if you remember, if you were around, Jesus went on a little two day retreat where he was transfigured and he brought with him three of the 12 disciples Peter, James, and John. And you got the sense that there was something maybe special about those three disciples that kind of excluded the other nine from that experience. And then earlier, as I had already mentioned, you know, Jesus had looked specifically at Peter and he'd said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower. And he kind of singled out Peter. And so among these 12 disciples, there seems to be this kind of ranking or categorizing that's emerging. And it might have tapped into some of their insecurity. And so they were kind of legitimately wondering, not only theoretically, but practically in their own lives. You know, not only who was the greatest, but, um, you know, would they be the greatest? Or what would they have to do to become the greatest? Or how how did that ranking dynamic work? What were the kind of the rungs on the ladder of status in this emerging kingdom of God? That's their their question. And so Jesus responds to them in verse 2 by using a bit of an object lesson. It says Jesus called a little child to him and he placed the child among them and he said truly I tell you unless you change and become like little children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you change and become like little children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven now the, the, the text doesn't tell us what this child was doing or why Jesus chose this particular child. You can imagine that they're sitting there, maybe their parents were there, listening to Jesus teach. I don't know, but they were probably sitting, you know, curbside or on the side of a hill playing their iPad. And Jesus just interrupted their game and, you know, kind of thrust them into the middle of this crowd. But, you know, suffice to say, it's not hard to imagine that this child was completely oblivious of what was going on. And all of a sudden they're standing in the middle of this, this crowd. And the idea that they were oblivious is kind of Jesus point. Because as much as children in Jesus day had very low status societally. They ranked below women, probably just a half degree above like pets. They were children in Jesus' day were barely even considered full humans uh, until adulthood. And and it's not their lack of status that Jesus is highlighting. Because when he says, unless you change and become like them, the word change is really the, the crux of this passage. Because that's the original word that we often translate as repent the word repent, which is literally a 180 degree turnabout, but it's a turnabout inwardly in your attitude of heart. What Jesus is saying is that unless your attitude of heart can become like this child, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's the idea, not that this child lacks status, it's the idea that they're oblivious to it. You know, seriously, they probably weren't, you know, working on their iPad in Jesus' day. They were probably just sitting there picking their nose. And I'm sure by the time Jesus thrust them into the middle of the crowd, they were still digging for gold, completely you know, unaffected by the fact that it was Jesus himself that thrust them in the middle of this crowd. It's not like the child showed up and said, finally, someone's paying attention to me. Finally, this guy who's become so popular is noticing me. Finally, I'm getting some airtime and I'm becoming a somebody. They didn't do that. They just stood there oblivious to what was going on. Not because they had no status, but because they didn't care about it and remember the disciples were asking Jesus about how the status system of the kingdom of God worked. presumably because in their hearts they cared and so he's saying unless your hearts change and become like these little children who don't care he says you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven and notice he doesn't say that that makes you great he says that makes you just able to enter unless you get a heart that's like a child who's oblivious to the societal status around them and doesn't care unless you can get your heart to that place. He says, you can't even qualify for entrance. Never mind, become the greatest. And so kind of wrapping this up, he sort of draws two conclusions or two action steps to to flesh this out. In verse four, first of all, he says, therefore, on the one hand, whoever takes The lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The important thing to appreciate here is he's not just restating his point about changing and becoming like them in your attitude of heart. When he talks about taking the position of this child, he's talking about a conscious decision that is made in an ongoing way. It's more the verb tense here that's the the, the key feature in understanding what Jesus is getting at here. It's the conscious choice to live this way In an ongoing way. And so moment by moment, day by day, you are choosing to do a 180 degree turnabout from the gravitational flow of society and its status messages to become oblivious and become nonchalant and become uncaring about your status and rank in society. Jesus says it's that person that becomes great. And in fact, the more frequently and to the greater degree that you can do that, he says, proportionally, the greater you become in his new society referred to as his kingdom. On the one hand, this inner attitude of heart change is just not a one-time deal. It's an ongoing, conscious, moment-by-moment decision that we need to make in order to become more childlike in that regard. And then, he says, it's not just a personal application. There's also a relational application. In verse five, he says, and, meaning also, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. He says, not only does this attitude of heart require an ongoing moment-by-moment decision, but it also plays out in the kind of people we choose to associate with. Which only makes sense if you think about, you know, in our day and age, the kind of person who really cares about their status. The number one way that that plays out is not in the brands that they buy or wear or whatever, but rather in their relationships. And who they hang out with and who they include and who they exclude their social circles, their business networks, their political alliances and their allegiances. And that, that, that's a key part of living in a way that pursues status. And what Jesus says is when you're becoming like a child and not caring about that anymore, you're letting that go and becoming free of aspiring to that kind of stuff. You begin to see people differently and now you're not associating with people according to the way that they can advance your status. You're just associating with people because God loves them and they're beautiful in God's eyes. And whether they're somebody's or nobody's you're befriending them and becoming, you know, entering into relationship with them because it no longer matters. So you you can become friends with other people who like children have low status because you like a child are becoming the kind of person who doesn't care about it anymore. Does that make sense? In this first of the deadly sins that Jesus is addressing. It's a real short passage, hopefully very simple, for us to kind of apply to our, only, our own lives today. You know, the disciples are wondering, you know, what the class system, what the ranking system is in the kingdom. Jesus takes this child and says, your attitude of heart has got to become like them. Not that you have to have low status, but you've got to have a heart that doesn't care. The heart that doesn't care, translates into the choices that you make moment by moment, day by day in what you aspire to in the way that you aspire to live. And it translates into the kind of relationships that you have. You know, where Jesus is kind of developing the idea of building his church in a way that the gates of hell will not overpower it. The first thing that he kind of addresses in getting in the way of that is this heart that needs to pursue Rank and class and importance and significance what Jesus is really speaking to is a heart of status seeking a heart of status seeking and applied to our day and age what Jesus is saying to us today is that to live in a way where God can expand his kingdom significantly in and through our lives requires a heart of humility. A heart of humility. That's the opposite of a heart of status seeking because we've talked in many t- uh, different uh, times and environments like this that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Humility is simply thinking about yourself less. Humility is not caring about all that status and significance and reputation and you know how people view you and perception and whatever humility is just you know being pure hearted with God and loving him and loving people with all your heart soul mind and strength and not caring about what other people think, not needing their approval, not needing their praise, not needing their kind of respect or ranking, just being free from all of that. And what God, I hope through Matthew and through Jesus is teaching us today is that humility requires a couple things. First of all, it requires an ongoing conscious decision that humility doesn't happen by accident. Humility is an ongoing conscious decision that you and I choose to make moment by moment, day by day, to reverse the tide and the gravitational flow of the message of society that status matters and that we ought to care about it. And moment by moment can let go and let go and let go and relinquish that so that number two, humility can change the way that we relate. And we can befriend somebodies and nobodies and particularly nobodies because of the disproportionate heart of affection and love that God has for them. So that we can experience the kind of relationships that are diverse and mutually transforming and pointing us to God. And not just trying to keep up with the Joneses and leverage agendas and people who can advance our status and cause in the world. We're relating freely because we're living freely, because we've embraced true humility and abandoned the need for status seeking. That's the kind of church that Jesus envisions for us today. The kind of church that he believes, you know, on rocks like us, the gates of hell cannot overpower. He envisions a humble church. That's Jesus' definition of a successful church, a humble church. Church. Most of us might assume that a successful church is a church that finds itself in the right neighborhood or a church that, you know, has a certain socioeconomic capacity, you know, uh, galvanizing people of a certain social or economic class so that we can really do great things for God. That's not what Jesus envisions as a great church. That's not a success to Jesus. A successful church is a church whose arms open as widely as his and are as inclusive as him who welcome all walks of life, particularly those who live on the fringes and on the margins and find themselves ostracized by most of society and by most people because they're being noticed by God through his people of faith. A successful church is a church whose bandwidth is the widest, who can celebrate the greatest degree of unity in diversity. Not because you all have to fit a certain mold or become the same kind of cliquey, successful people, but because our definition of success has changed because humility has taken over and we're no longer defining things according to whether we all can keep up with the Joneses, but whether we can love as lavishly as Jesus. The important thing about a a humble church is a humble church doesn't just happen automatically. It takes humble people. Churches don't become humble. Individual people do. As we relinquish the need to seek status, as we adopt a heart of humility and make conscious choices to relinquish that need moment by moment, day by day, that translate into the kind of conscious choices that can walk across rooms and introduce ourselves to people that we otherwise might not normally rub shoulders with. Or make choices that can relinquish some of our precious busy time from accomplishing the next big thing. To take time for people that we otherwise normally may not otherwise have had time for. To open spaces, to befriend and experience the kind of love and relationship that ultimately, one by one and one by one, fosters community. Humble people translate into a humble community. That's Jesus' vision for our lives and our church on a day like today. And just to be clear, let's appreciate that in becoming humble and developing this inner attitude of heart that abandons status seeking, it doesn't mean that we have to downgrade our capacity or pursue, you know, less ambitious goals for our lives. That's not what God is talking about. We don't have to sort of downgrade our status to have hearts that relinquish the need for an upgraded status. There's there's a difference. I was thinking recently about this, that Marianne Williamson quote. That among other things says you're, uh, says that you're playing small you're playing small doesn't serve the world as a child of God, you were meant to shine right the vision of God isn't that we all play small that's not humility that's thinking less of ourselves and not allowing God to get his kingdom best and full potential out of each one of our lives right that that's thinking small that's not humility humility isn't thinking. Less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And while we try to realize the full potential of God's investment in us personally and as a church, it's being free from caring about what status that places us at and what other people think about us and where that would rank us. It's not the having of status that's the deadly sin, according to Jesus. It's the needing of the status and the pursuing it you know, tenaciously in what we do in our hearts and in who we associate with in our relationships. That's the deadly sin. Not having status, but seeking status that can be combated by hearts of humility. As we think about that today, I'd encourage you to to check out your program because... I've put in it uh, some tests that I hope can help identify the degree of status seeking we might have in our lives and may struggle with and, and some action steps that we can potentially take this week as a bit of a homework assignment to help us foster a little more frequently that choice of humility to relinquish the seeking of status one I've called talking more than asking. A lot of times as status seekers, we tend to promote ourselves. And so in conversations, we spend more time talking about ourselves and what we're up to and what we're doing and what we're impressing and what we're achieving rather than actually being interested in other people. So I've said here, you know, why don't we try to have a conversation, especially with a person whose opinion of us we value. Try having a conversation this week where all you do is ask questions of them. All you do is just curiously and others orientingly, you know, be interested in them, find out more about them, find out what they're up to, find out what they're achieving and spend time encouraging them instead of spending the predominant bulk of the time promoting yourself. Another one related to talking about yourself a lot is what I would call one upping the other. When we get into status-seeking mode, we often find that we do that. Someone will say something about something that they've done recently, and we'll respond kind of tit-for-tat with, with something that's a little bit better. You know, something that's a little higher on the, on the success or status wrong. And I find, especially for those of us who are parents, we can easily fall into this trap. So try to resist that urge this week, especially parents among, the, among us. If someone talks about their little Johnny, and you know the science fair that they won, or the A that they got on their math test, or you know the 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 medal that they won, or the game that they won, or the goal that they scored. Don't try to talk about the two A's or the two goals or the two ribbons or two medals that your little Susie got to try to one up them. Resist the urge to one up them by just celebrating what they did without having to bring up what your little Susie or whatever achieved. Another related to this that is common for a status seeker is what I call sharing your resume. Sharing your resume is including all the little details in the story of your day that in the details advance your status. So you didn't just work out, you went to the club. You know, you didn't just have a date with your spouse, you had the, you know, lobster, scrambled eggs, at blue turtle. Or, like it's, it's all in the little details that you include, instead of just saying generally what you did, that are meant to capture the status meter in someone else, and, and to elevate your status. And so, pay attention to those, try to limit those details, and share transparently, but without needing to include all those, you know, little points that, that can kind of butter you up in the eyes of others. And then number four, I think this may be very significant for some of us. Pay attention to how you behave online. And uh, this may merit a whole other conversation, but I know among all the online platforms these days, Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and whatever, I, I would say pay particular attention if you're a frequent user of Facebook. Because the way Facebook works is, you know, it requires a, it's called a status update. To actually engage in Facebook, you know, most of the time requires that you say something about your status. And by and large, if we're honest with ourselves, we're not saying something that's crappy. You know, people will post meals that they had. Have you ever seen someone at eight o'clock in the morning post a bowl of Cheerios on Facebook? No, because it's not impressive. It doesn't add to your status. We're, we're posting the gourmet meal or the deluxe meal that we spent three hours creating the one that we found in Pinterest that now we're trying to replicate or the one that, you know, we spent hundreds of dollars on. That's the one that we post on Facebook. The picture of ourselves is the one after 20 pictures we've kind of combed through that we're happy with, puts us in the best light. Right, it's called image crafting. That's what we do, and we kind of guard and post the best part of our day. Not the worst, because those status updates aren't just benign status updates. They're, if we're honest with ourselves, quite often, the updates of status that will advance our status. So let's pay attention to how we do that, and maybe resist the urge, whether it's an online fast, or if you wanna stay engaged online or even in Facebook, Use, it, use the social media tool to build up other people. Use it to connect and to encourage and to cheer on and celebrate what other people are doing instead of drawing attention to your own status. Because the big idea today is only when we're free of seeking our own status that we can truly live as humble people. And it's only when we gather together as growing, humble people that we can relate to one another with that heart of humility that becomes the kind of community on whom the gates of hell cannot overpower. Right? The real big idea that Jesus wants us to concentrate on today, the big question is what will it take in your life and in mine and in your heart and in mine to let go of that need to seek and pursue status and instead to pursue a heart and a way of life of humility, to be free of that, just be free to be ourselves and to love people as God loves them. The bigger question though This is how I want to wrap up this morning. The bigger question isn't just what it will take for us to relinquish status and pursue hearts of humility. The bigger question is why Jesus would include this attribute in these five deadly sins of the church. You think back to what I talked about in the beginning. What would happen in our hearts and minds if all of a sudden I was going to start taking sips of a beer during a sermon? What, how uncomfortable we, we would be because that's an absolute no-no in church. Have you ever seen someone dominate a conversation talking about themselves? Or try to one-up another person or drop little hints on their resume or brag about themselves online and have that same reaction and think, that's incompatible with a life of faith? Why would Jesus think that those kinds of behaviors, that that kind of heart of status-seeking is so deadly and so fundamentally incompatible with a life of faith and the church that he's building on earth as it is in heaven? Have you ever thought about that? Why would status-seeking be such a deadly sin? Because, if you stop and think about it, it flatly sabotages the essence of the gospel. It fundamentally sabotages what the gospel is all about. Because the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus Christ is all about the person of Jesus. It's all about who he was and who he is and what he's doing in our lives and in the world. It's about his sinless life. It's about his sacrificial death. It's about his miraculous resurrection and about his living spirit that exists today to invade the lives of forgiven believers to transform us from the inside out and unite us to make us the people that we ultimately could never be. That's what Mike talked about last week when he talked about the arc of the story of God described in the Bible and said the surprising twist is about how God in his love for us while we were sin soiled and fallen and broken enemies of his did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. The message of Jesus Christ is all about Jesus, not about us and about what God did for us through Jesus and what God wants to do in us and through us today because of and by Jesus, not ourselves. And because the gospel is fundamentally about God and what he's up to in the world through Jesus, not about ourselves, status-seeking fundamentally sabotages that because whenever we find ourselves in status-seeking mode, we fundamentally are all about ourselves. And if we're all about ourselves, we can't be all about Jesus. And if we're not all about Jesus, we're not all about the fundamentals of the gospel. And the reason status seeking is such a deadly sin, the reason Jesus says unless you can become like that child in their attitude of heart, you can't even enter the kingdom of God is because until we're free of caring what everyone else thinks about us, until we're free of our own image, we're not free to exclusively care what Jesus thinks and care about advancing his status in the world. So let's let God press deep into our hearts today and make us not only hearers of this word, but doers as well and do what it takes moment by moment, day by day to relinquish the societal tidal wave of status seeking and image crafting and grow in our humility in ways that don't just become personally habitual, but ways that become a way of life and how we relate to others. Not only so that we can be the kind of church where the gates of hell cannot overpower, but ultimately so that we can be the kind of people and community that advance the one person status who's worth advancing in the world. Our Lord, our Savior, the person Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we thank you so much for the freedom of this time to be able to open and study your word. And I pray that by your spirit, you have been touching and pointing out issues in each one of our lives today. God, we all, shall, we all fall short in this regard. We all want the approval of others. We all want to be seen as a somebody and to be considered more important than maybe we even are. God, I pray that you would point out the need to relinquish status-seeking the need to turn about from that and then give us the strength by your spirit to become humble people, not people who think less of ourselves, but just people who are free from status-seeking, who think of ourselves less. And God, as you grow that habitually into our lives and our behavior and our character, make us the kind of people that can open our arms wide to all kinds of relationships and to enjoy the, the wonder of diverse friendship more diverse than we've ever experienced so that we can enjoy more of you and God more than anything make us the kind of church not only that is welcoming and inclusive of everyone and anyone no matter who they are what status they have in society help us to love them as you love but God help us to be concerned with one person's status the person of Jesus Christ help us to advance his name his fame to care about his reputation more than anything and in caring about his status to become more free of caring about ours. God, do that work in us. Protect us from that deadly sin and make us the kind of people on whom you can build your church today. We love you and thank you that you want to do that in our midst. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.